Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. I am once again joined today by Sam Romani, a distinguished Oxford scholar specializing in international relations. Romani is also a member of London's Royal United Service Institute and brings a wealth of firsthand experience on Russia and the Ukraine, as well as academic insights into Russia's military involvement in Chechnya and Syria. Romani describes our global politics as increasingly volatile due to the erosion of international law and the rise of a multipolar world. He views Russia's invasion of Ukraine not merely as a breach of sovereignty, but as a symptom of a larger systemic decay in international norms. But Russia and Ukraine aren't his only focus. Romani offers a critical look at the waning influence of American soft power as he argues that the U.S., through its military interventions and frequent use of sanctions, has eroded its own diplomatic leverage. This decline, he argues, has implications for the ongoing deadlock in Ukraine, where neither side appears willing to yield, and each is waiting for external shifts to tip the balance. But he doesn't stop at Ukraine. He extends his analysis to terrorist actions in Israel and the war in Gaza, questioning whether the U.S. can afford to stretch its resources across multiple conflict zones. My conversation with Sam Romani serves as a sobering overview of a world teetering on the brink, held hostage by complex alliances and shifting power dynamics. It is my pleasure to welcome Sam Romani here to the program. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. It's great to be here. Well, it is a delight to have you. As you look around at the world today, do you see it at a more dangerous point than it's been in quite some time? Well, I think that certainly we're seeing the erosion of international law, really to an extent to which I haven't seen really since the end of the Cold War. For example, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, obviously, was the most flagrant violation of state sovereignty in Europe since the end of the Second World War. And it was really quite alarming to see that the vast majority of countries, particularly the global South, Asia, Africa, Latin America, have not taken the United stand against it or sanctioned Russia or punished Russia for what it's done. And now we're seeing that same kind of erosion of international law and norms appearing in the Middle East and the Indo-Pacific region. So while it's maybe too early to tell just how dangerous this moment is, it's certainly by the standards of the past few decades, a very perilous time. And certainly we seem to be in a, in a much more aggressive multipolar world right now. For a long time, we thought after the Cold War that we were looking at a unipolar world. The, quite the opposite is true today. Absolutely, yeah. We're really seeing multipolarity starting to uh, take effect. And uh, that has, is part of the reason perhaps for the instability of the world order, I would argue. But it's also, uh, maybe it's just a transition from one uh, nature of the international system from a relatively unipolar order to a multipolar order has more of a problem than the exact uh, character of how it's changing. It's a transition that may be more important than what the world is actually turning into. And uh, we're seeing that multipolarity really on display in the Middle East and Africa, right? We're seeing traditional uh, American partners, for example, like uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, the UAE, trying to balance between uh, Russia, China, and the United States and trying to see what they can get from all of them, right? Like the Saudis, for example, are cooperating with the Russians on oil prices. They're cooperating with the Chinese on uh, Huawei and 5G, and they're maintaining an upgraded security partnership with the United States. And in Africa, we've seen that process really be underway for the better part of a quarter century, where we've seen American influence decline precipitously after the Cold War. France, to leave in the security sphere being challenged by Russia, China leading economically, 
and regional powers like Turkey and the Gulf monarchies running rampant and kind of doing their own uh, activities. So this is something that we've been seeing happening for the better part of a quarter century. But now multipolarity is accelerating. And with the change in the world order, we're seeing a lot more instability and violence. How has the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, how has that changed the landscape in fundamental ways? Well, I think that the Russian war in Ukraine, obviously, was, uh, first of all, an assault on the uh, principle of Westphalian sovereignty. Right? It really uh, was, uh, uh, aside from the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, perhaps, in 1990 to 1991, where the international community largely united against Iraq, with the exception of a small number of countries like Jordan and Sudan, the, this was the biggest uh, assault on Westphalian sovereignty, really, uh, since the end of the Cold War. And it was striking to see that Russia was able to quite successfully polarize the international community, but the global north sanctioning and the global south uh, avoiding it. And that is a sign, I think, and a testament to uh, the uh, emergence of a multipolar order. For example, we've seen uh, the United States uh, quietly, or sometimes even not so quietly, cajole African countries to uh, not necessarily continue uh, uh, engaging with Russia. They've highlighted their narratives, for example, about the uh, issue of food supply, right? Like how Russia is uh, weaponizing food against African countries is something that's uh, quite problematic. They've, uh, uh, but even those narratives haven't really shifted them and haven't really deterred them from uh, continuing to engage with the with the Russians, right? And uh, then we saw that the U.S. Africa summit in December of 2022, when the Americans are really pushing for that. So I think that the war has done a lot to polarize the international community more firmly in the global north and the global south. And the United States just lacks the ability to use soft power. It can use secondary sanctions and hard power to destroy countries. But if the U.S. lacks the ability to use soft power to really discourage countries from pursuing uh, foreign policy orientations that it doesn't want them to do. I think that's something that's quite significant. How has the U.S. lost that ability to exercise soft power? Well, I think that the erosion of American soft power has been something that's been a long way in the making. And we should distinguish between American soft power in terms of diplomatic leverage, to American soft power in terms of the popularity and the enduring uh, admiration for the American model of governance and way of life. For example, in Africa, I'm referring to soft power erosions in the United States in terms of U.S.'s ability to be able to co-opt and persuade countries from following its foreign policy course, like isolating Russia, for example, or being more circumspect about China and the Balkan Road. That doesn't necessarily mean that the American model of governance or the American education system or the American way of life has become more unpopular. In fact, if you look at opinion polls and surveys in Africa, you see America and China running neck and neck on the soft power ranking, with people equally viewing America and China as a positive force in the world, maybe 60 or 70% viewing it as such, but whereas Russia is only viewed positively by 30 to 40%. And uh, when it comes to whether you prefer American universities uh, living in America, if you're a middle-class family and you want to send your kids somewhere versus going to China, America's got a clear advantage. So the soft power decline has really been confined lar and largely restricted to the realm of diplomacy and being able to, uh, in America's ability to persuade countries to pursue its preferred foreign policy outcome. It hasn't extended, fortunately for the United States, to the realms of way of life, uh, governance, and uh, the, uh, the power of the American economy. That's just one point I wanted to make, and a distinction that's often not drawn, I think we should draw. So why is American soft power in the realm of diplomacy uh, declined since the end of the Cold War? 
One of the things that we should be focusing on, obviously, is the American actions themselves, right? Obviously, the backlash against American unilateralism uh, and the polarization that it caused, combined with the fact that Russia and China and other non-Western countries have tried to polarize the international order against these policies, like uh, the war in Kosovo, the war in Iraq, the war in Libya, the uh, U.S. efforts to change regimes in Syria and Venezuela, most recently. Those could be examples of how the United States' actions have led to the, the, the Russians and Chinese being able to polarize the global south and the global north. Also, one could argue that the U.S. has overused uh, sanctions, and that has also led to allegations and a credible belief amongst many global south countries that the U.S. is trying to interfere in the political systems of different countries to the point of not recognizing the diversity of cultures and civilizations. And that's something that Russia and China have capitalized on. So I think that it might be an overuse of hard power. And uh, that, that went, I mean, it actually led to the diminution of American soft power, particularly in terms of military interventions and this overuse of sanctions. And now we're seeing the world order bifurcate and polarize instead of uh, coming together, even when a country does something so manifestly unjust as Russia did by invading Ukraine. Talk a little bit about Ukraine and where you think that stands right now. So the situation in Ukraine obviously was a bit of a disappointment for the Americans and also for the Ukrainians in terms of how this counteroffensive has gone. And uh, I think that the Ukrainians were expecting that the Russian uh, defensive lines would uh, atrophy similarly to the way they did in Kharkiv and Kurzan in the fall of last year. And that clearly hasn't happened because we've seen over the course of the past year, the Russians uh, arranged an elaborate array of fortifications, particularly in the Zaporizhia region. We've seen the Servikin line, right? Those three layers of fortifications really hold up. And they've combined uh, dragon teeth formations, landmines, as well as capitalizing on some of the mud and some of the unfavorable climatic conditions in Ukraine to create a very difficult bulwark for artillery to move and to transport. The Ukrainians were also, I think, somewhat frustrated by the fact that they didn't get air power and they didn't get uh, long-range missiles in time. They got the Storm Shadows and they got the Scout long-range missiles from Britain and France, respectively, but they didn't get American attacks. And we just saw today, if it actually happened, that the Ukrainians may have struck an airfield held by Russia in Berdyansk and achieved what uh, one Russian commentator described as the worst disaster in the history of the Northern Military District for Russia. The Ukrainians will be wondering why we couldn't have gotten these out of camp sooner, and we could have inflicted a lot more damage over the course of the summer and fall, and now we're looking at a much more underwhelming outcome. So I think it was a mixture of the strength of Russia's fortifications and the lack of delivery of air power and long-range missiles in a timely fashion that allowed the uh, front lines to stabilize relatively. I don't think there's going to be a drastic uh, improvement in Ukraine's position between now and the end of 2023. Equally, I think, however, the Ukrainians have also invested quite heavily in their own defenses, and the Russians are finding that the Ukrainians are using their own tactics against them. So the Russians are trying to advance in Afghanistan, and they're finding deep fortifications and mines, and they can't advance. So I think that both sides will not be able to advance appreciably in the uh, end of fall, into the winter. I mean, we might start seeing the battle lines moving again, hopefully in Ukraine's favor, with the Jets and the F-16s coming in in the spring of next year. How long can this war go on? Well, I mean, I think this war will go on as long as both sides have the appetite to continue it. I think that right now, neither side wants to uh, back down or 
even entertain seriously a negotiated settlement for reasons that they both believe are, are valid. For example, the Russians are hoping to wait out the war at least until November 2024, when they're hoping, obviously, maybe for a change of administration in the United States. I might be more skeptical of aiding Ukraine. So, for example, if Trump or even DeSantis or somebody of his variety were to become the president, they'd be hoping to uh, freeze the conflict in some way, shape, or form. The Russians uh, are also hoping that in the near term, more instability across the world will lead to the diversion of American resources away from the European theater and away from the Ukrainian theater. And that's precisely why so many Russian commentators were gloating about the war in Gaza that we've just seen. One commentator actually said that uh, the war in Gaza may be so uh, deleterious to American abilities to arm uh, Ukraine that the Americans might uh, push the Ukrainians immediately into a minced three scenario, which would lead to all four of the next regions of southern and eastern Ukraine, Donbass, uh, Donetsk, I mean, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, Kurzon, Crimea, and maybe even Mikhaili, even Odessa, falling into Russian hands. From an American perspective, of course, that's preposterous. Because the Americans, as Biden just said this past week, can easily sustain a war on two fronts because we're a superpower and we're the most powerful nation in the history of the world. But the Russians are seeing opportunities in this disruption and they're going to want to continue the war, even though it's costly for as long as possible, to capitalize on those opportunities. Whether it be instability across the world or whether it be a more favorable presidential administration in Washington. The Ukrainians also do not want to give up on any kind of territorial concessions because they fear that any territorial concessions right now will just be lining up the next generation to fight the war for this generation. So they want to end this once and for all. So that's why I think that this war will easily continue through 2024, but into 2025, it really depends on the nature of the international environment and also the administration in the United States being the main determinants. Talk a little bit about what we're seeing in Gaza right now and the way in which that may cause us to take our eye off the ball in the Ukraine and what it could cost Ukraine in terms of America's support and money. Well, I think that, you know, the war in uh, Israel and Gaza and the war in Ukraine are not necessarily uh, America having to choose one or the other. I think the U.S. still has the ability to supply both. I mean, obviously... Where things get challenging would be in the realm of ammunition, right? Because there's already been a chronic uh, problem with ammunition entering the front lines in Ukraine. We saw a senior official uh, in NATO, Rob Bauer, just say recently that NATO is scraping the bottom of the barrel when it comes to how much ammunition you can give to the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians also noticed that many European companies, some of the same European companies that have been pushing for sophisticated technology. They've been pushing for the Leopards. They've been pushing for the Martyrs. They've been pushing for... The uh, Taurus cruise missiles in Germany, for example, have not been producing uh, ammunition up to scratch. So they've been lobbying for the highly sophisticated technology, but they've not been producing the kind of bread and butter of the ammunition and artillery shells the Ukrainians need. So I think that there could be a crunch if the war in Israel and Gaza becomes a multi-front war in the Middle East, engaging Lebanon, Syria, maybe even Iraq with Iranian proxies. There could be a, 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 a bit of a crunch from the ammunition side. But if the war is confined to Gaza and American support for Israel is largely that of aircraft carriers with cruise missiles like the Gerald Ford and the Dwight Eisenhower or Iron Dome technology, then I think that basically we won't see much overlap in terms of U.S. assistance to Israel and U.S. assistance to Ukraine. And the two wars will be able to be sustained uh, simultaneously with minimal disruption. What do you make of the rhetoric currently coming out of Iran? 
Well, I think we should be very skeptical of the rhetoric that's coming out of Iran, even from the Iranian foreign ministry, right? Because uh, Hossein Amir Abdalian is a very different foreign minister than Jawad Zarif. Uh, Amir Abdalian is obviously a creature of the IRGC. He is very close to the hardliners. So he is somebody who is effectively articulating their position and their view. And their position has always been that uh, Iran is preparing for a massive multi-front war against Israel and the United States. And that's why it needs to divert scarce resources, even during a time of sanctions and economic decline, into arming proxy groups in Iraq, in Yemen, in Lebanon, and uh, of course, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. So Iranian rhetoric in a lot of ways could be just bluster. But there are certainly ways in which the Iranians could uh, be a spoiler and be a complicating factor for the Israelis at this time. Hezbollah is obviously an armed force that's substantially more sophisticated than Hamas. They've got longer-range missiles. They claim to have 150,000 fighters, which uh, Hamas claims to have 50,000. They have combat experience in Syria, which also is an advantage for them. Though one of the Russian generals, uh, one of the Russian colonels, actually, Colonel Mikhail Kordonia, who was one of the few Russians who predicted that the invasion of Ukraine would be difficult, said that Hezbollah aren't what they're cracked up to be. They aren't that powerful as a fighting force. They weren't that effective for us in Syria. So there's some doubts about their efficacy in Syria, but they still have a lot of experience. And given that, and given the fact that there's already skirmishes that have been confined to the Israel-Lebanon border, but repeating day in and day out to be the most deadly since 2006, and the fact that there was an Israel-Iraq set of uh, proxy conflicts in 2019, and the People's uh, Mobilization Front there, are rallying against American and Israeli targets. Remember, Soleimani was in Baghdad, and the EPMF were probably trying to target American assets even then. And the Yemeni Houthis have also threatened to get involved. It's very possible that Israel could face uh, attacks on multiple fronts. The question is, will it just be cross-border skirmishes like between Israel and Lebanon? Or like Israel striking Syrian air force like it's been doing for many years? Or Israel carrying out the odd strike in Iraq? Or will it be something much more expansive like we saw in 1948, 1967, and 1973? From my point of view, I think it's probably going to be confined to cross-border skirmishes, and it could be costly. The most I think that will open up is the Lebanon front, but uh, we can't rule out any outcome, and the Iranians are certainly trying to keep fire under Israel's uh, belly and warning them that you know something massive and apocalyptic is coming. What is the best course of action right now for Israel, given the the internal pressure they have to take strong action, plus perhaps not wanting to let this turn into a wider war? Well, Israel has got a difficult situation right now, obviously, because Israel cannot uh, not uh, respond assertively to the uh, scale of the attack that we saw from Hamas with 1,400 people dead. I mean, Israel has to respond very assertively and very decisively. Uh, otherwise, uh, it uh, will risk uh, further attacks of this kind, especially if Shin Bet has not actually sorted out why Hamas was able to carry out this attack to begin with. Like how Hamas was able to carry out a land air attack together, how Hamas was able to use paragliders, which are loud and slow moving, and still escape detection with all the cameras and surveillance that they had at the border. Um, these are a lot of questions that I don't know the Israelis have answered in the scope of a week. So Israel has to keep the pressure up to ensure that Hamas doesn't uh, strike back again and there's not a repeat of what we just saw. So Israel has to res- continue responding in some way for its own self-defense and for its own security. But the question is, uh, how far can Israel go and how far will it go? 
Obviously, Israel has slightly delayed the start of the ground invasion of the Gaza Strip, which is expected this weekend. It's blamed climatic conditions. Others have pointed to the fact that the 1.1 million people of the Israelis asked to move from northern to southern Gaza would simply take a lot longer than 24 hours. So they were over-optimistic to begin with. Some have mentioned the fact that, you know, uh, Joe Biden is visiting tomorrow and they want to wait and see what the Americans have to say before they start. I still think that the Israeli ground operation will uh, kickstart in the Gaza Strip, uh, but uh, it could be quite long and it could be quite costly. For example, Hamas has a vast uh, network of tunnels that it operates uh, for the better part of a decade. Will the Israelis send troops uh, down to those tunnels like they did in 2008 and 2009? Keep in mind, they have 300,000 reservists, many of them who aren't uh, trained, sending untrained troops into these tunnels. Or will they use bunker buster bombs like they've already started to use and kill loads of civilians and increase uh, pressure on them from the uh, Western countries and from the uh, the Arab countries that have normalized with Israel and from the broader international community. So I think that Israel will pursue a grand invasion simply because it's got no choice. It needs to prevent another attack of this kind, and Netanyahu needs to respond decisively to uh, preempt the fact that his popularity ratings are now hit rock bottom. But the uh, prospect of Israel actually achieving regime change in Gaza, overthrowing Hamas, and potentially reoccupying the, the, the Gaza Strip, that's going to be a long, hard journey. I expect that Israel will stay the course, but it'll do so with a lot of uh, pressure and criticism and, and uh, backlash as the war drags on. And at the end of that period, who winds up controlling Gaza? So that's the question that uh, everybody wants to know, because this is looking a lot like you know what happened when the Americans went into Iraq and Libya, right? It was great to overthrow Saddam Hussein. It was great to overthrow Gaddafi. And then the question was, what next, right? And the same thing happens when you overthrow Hamas. So obviously, the Israelis are keeping uh, it very close to their chest, exactly what their plans are. We saw the Israeli ambassador to the United States say that there's no plan to occupy Gaza afterward. And uh, Biden also said this week that the uh, Israelis should not occupy Gaza. We saw the Israeli military uh, spokesperson, Denny Hagari, speak today and say that there'll be a global solution to the situation in Gaza. So we'll be engaging with Gaza's neighbors. So presumably some kind of dialogue with Egypt on uh, what will happen to the state of the strip. That was not a situation, that was not a denunciation of occupation. It was just something that we'll discuss and we'll agree to. The Egyptians almost certainly won't agree to occupation. So it looks as if it probably is Israel saying we won't occupy without using those words. The other scenario would obviously be the uh, if Israel does not go the route of occupation. I don't think that they will they will have to install a friendly government inside Gaza. So potentially, they will try to uh, bring remnants of the Palestinian Authority into, into governing it because they want to capitalize on the fact that Haniyeh, the Hamas leader, is even more popular than Abbas in the Palestinian territories. But Abbas will not want to look like he's collaborating with Israel, so he might not cooperate. So the Israelis might need to find somebody else, local, who's pliable, a bit like what they did in Lebanon with Bashar Gamal in 1982, and uh, find a temporary uh, proxy there. And that will just be a breeding ground for a new Hamas to form, more militarism, more extremism, and more violence in the region if that is not accompanied by negotiations on two-state solution. So Israel's uh, endgame, after toppling the Hamas government, is looking quite murky. They face a choice between occupation, which they don't want and the Americans don't want, and the Egyptians absolutely don't want, some kind of a regime change that could lead to more instability, or just the reemergence eventually of a new kind of a Hamas type terror group there, or negotiations on a two state solution, which seems to be extremely remote at this time.
And where did China and, and Russia fall into the Middle East situation? What are their next moves? So uh, the Russians and the Chinese, obviously, are using this uh, crisis uh, to really showcase their power inside the Middle East, right? And we're seeing the uh, Russians, for example, in particular, leverage diplomacy with a variety of actors to show that they're still not isolated in the region and they have the footprint that they created when they intervened in Syria. So the Russians have talked to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. They've maintained uh, back channels with Palestinian factions, including inviting Mahmoud, uh, Mahmoud Abbas to Moscow. They uh, engaged with Iraq and signed an OPEC plus uh, oil agreement with the Iraqis. They've engaged with Lebanon about not broadening the war to a new front. They talked to Bashar al-Assad in Syria. So they, the Russians have been talking to everyone and trying to act as messengers between all of the different actors. And that's even what, they, what Putin said uh, to Netanyahu, who was like, passing on messages from the other Arab leaders and Iran and Syria to the uh, Israelis. So that's what Russia is trying to do. The Chinese haven't been so uh, public in their diplomatic forays in the region. They actually kept quiet uh, in the early days after the war. But both Russia and China have converged on one point. Uh, they want an immediate ceasefire. Russia tabled that in the UN. The Chinese uh, went along with it, but didn't table their own resolution. And they also believe that Israel has overstretched itself and that uh, Israel's obstructionism of a two-state solution was the ultimate cause of this problem. So both the Russians and the Chinese are trying to uh, use criticisms of Israel to uh, appeal to the uh, broader Middle East and to earn soft power in the global south, possibly at the expense of their own relationships with Israel. Of course, the Israelis supplied the Chinese with military equipment after the Tiananmen Square massacre, and uh, China's got robust economic ties with Israel. Russia has got diasporic links with the Israelis. Israel hasn't sanctioned Russia. They uh, regularly engage in Syria. So the Russians and the Chinese are sacrificing their relations with Israel, at least in the short term, for broader soft power in the Middle East and the global south by taking a pro-Palestinian stance and distinguishing themselves from uh, what the Americans have done. And that's why how I read it. And I think that that will be a proof that Russia is not isolated. Uh, China is still a diplomatic player in the Middle East, even if it can't post a grand bargain on Israel-Palestine like it did with Saudi Arabia and Iran back in March. And finally, what's the one thing you think that we should be closely following, closely looking at as the situation in the Middle East continues to unfold? Well, I think the thing we should be uh, obviously watching are several things. I mean, just a few points I want to make. Number one is what relation does it mean for Israel's uh, rapprochement with the uh, Arab countries and for the future of the Abraham Accords, right? We've seen Egypt already push for a ceasefire and uh, not wanting to accept residents from Gaza, which is in some ways a little bit aligned with Hamas's position, which is urging people to stay in place because they don't want to have uh, what they would view as some kind of ethnic cleansing of the Gaza Strip. So that's what the uh, Egyptians are pushing for. Jordan has been very vocal and critical of the Israelis. The Emirates have been a bit more cautious, but certainly not on their side. And it seems that the Saudi-Israeli negotiations, in spite of Biden's uh, and the administration's shuttle diplomacy last week, appears to be on ice. So obviously, the first question is, what does this mean for the long-term future of the uh, Abraham Accords, especially because Hamas uh, justified a terrorist attack in part by claiming that it was trying to torpedo the uh, alignments between Israel and the Arab countries and Ismail Haniyeh after the terror attack said Israel cannot be trusted as a partner for Arab countries. So obviously this could, at least in the near term, 
grind uh, the rapprochement between Israel and the Arab world to a halt. But I, I don't think that, that that will necessarily be permanent because if Iran gets involved and this becomes a multi-site war, this will suddenly become less of an Israeli-Gaza war and more of an Israeli-Iranian proxy war. And that might mean the Gulf countries will get concerned and want to re-engage with Israel. So if it remains confined to Gaza and just Israel killing lots of Palestinians, then the normalization talks are nice. But if it broadens and Iran is the main focus and threat, then we can see the Saudis and the Emiratis trying to uh, quietly reestablish their back channels with Israel and uh, keep their relationship and normalization moving. The second thing that I think is really important and really interesting to think about with regards to this, uh, yeah, this, uh, this war, obviously, would be uh, how the, uh, the war is ultimately resolved. Is it resolved uh, w- with uh, the uh, overthrow of Hamas and uh, some kind of a regime change, occupation, uh, a lot of uncertainty? And, or is it resolved in some way through diplomacy, through a financial ceasefire down the line? And is that diplomacy brokered by the United States? Is it brokered by uh, regional actors in the Middle East? Or does either Russia or China or some other actor have a hand in, uh, in trying to end this? Because this will be important to see to what extent the Middle East and to what extent the world order is truly moving in a multipolar direction. If it's the Americans taking the lead, it'll show that the Americans still got the uh, cards in the Middle East. If it's another power taking the lead, it could be a sign of China's uh, success between Saudi Arabia and Iran was not a one-off and it wasn't a fluke. It's a sign of a changing region and a changing world order. So we have to see what the uh, situation in Israel and Gaza turns into and who ultimately is responsible or helpful in ending it. Because that will be important to determine where the world order goes from there. Sam Romani, I thank you so much for spending time with us and for your deep insights into some of these issues. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, it was great to talk to you. Thank you.